Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lin, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now with the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China and the World. The writing of history in China has, right from its earliest moments, been a fraught affair. Look at China's first great historian, Sima Qian. After he was embroiled in a court scandal, the emperor gave Sima Qian the choice of castration or execution. He chose castration and three years in prison so he could finish his epic work, the first large-scale history of China, and this set in place a template. The writing of history was seen. Not so much as a job, but as a calling that could require sacrifice. And in communist China, the job of the historian has become increasingly dangerous, and for some, has required huge sacrifice. This month, we're delighted to start a two-part series on history and memory with Ian Johnson, whose new book comes out this week. It's called Sparks: China's Underground Historians and Their Battle for the Future, and it's an amazing read. Um, Ian, there's this fascinating story which you tell, which sums up the state's efforts to control the historical record, and it's set in Zhurong, this county-level city near Nanjing, with about six hundred thousand souls, where government officials are compiling an official version of local history,、um, which is called a county gazetteer or, or a xianzhi, and these histories are produced by county governments. And for my sins. Back in the nineties,、um, I actually had to try and buy all of these for my university back in Australia, single-handedly、um, keeping Beijing University's、uh, post office in business. And、um, in these books, they have eye-wateringly dull statistics, but also really kind of interesting snippets, including things like you know the, the county's battle with witchcraft, for example. But in the case of Zhurong, there was this、um, history of its temples, and you'd been there before,、um, interviewing in a Taoist. Temple complex known as Maoshan, a very significant temple complex. And when you read this gazetteer, you had a bit of a shock.、Um, what did it say in the gazetteer? Well, when I I've been to Maoshan earlier, I went there for the first time in 1995, and this was pre- soon, pretty soon after it had been rebuilt. It had been destroyed mainly, actually, in the Cultural Revolution, and、um, it had been. It's just out being just outside of Nanjing. It was right in the way of the Japanese troops when they. Invaded、um, and attacked Nanjing, and so it was partly torched by the Japanese in 1937. But there were records and re- accounts of of、uh, monks and, and nuns living there、um, and, and practicing in the 50s and 60s. But in the 1960s, based on oral history research I'd done and, and local gazetteers,、uh, the Red Guards in the Cultural Revolution had completely destroyed the temples in, to the point of taking the foundation stones of the temples and rolling them down the hills.、Um, and this was alluded to in earlier、uh, gazetteers, where it said extremists had、um, and it had suffered damage in the Cultural Revolution, that sort of thing. It was it was. It was fragmentary, but you got a bit of a picture that something had happened in the Cultural Revolution. When I went back and I saw the new gazetteer being assembled, and, and I got into to the actual office and was talking to the people who did it, they had completely elided all of this, and it was basically just the Japanese fault. And they just sort of then jumped to the 1990s when the temple was rebuilt. So this history of this, as you say, a significant temple complex, it might be. Sort of like、um, you know the the history of Notre Dame or Chartres 
or some other grand cathedral in, in, in Western civilization, it's on a par of, of, of that, uh, that the, an absolutely crucial part of its history had just been erased. I mean, you've spent the last, what, 20, 30 years interviewing these people who write alternative histories and thinking about history and memory in China. So I'm, I guess I'm a little bit surprised that you found that shocking. I mean, why do you think it was such a moment for you? Well, I guess because I knew the area well, I thought they would always admit to something having gone on in the Cultural Revolution. I didn't think they would completely erase it. But you're right. The When you're looking at these kinds of things in China, one has this hamster tendency. Uh, if you find a book or you see an exhibition to immediately want to buy the book or photograph the exhibition or buy the catalog because the next time you see it, it may be completely different. And um, I saw that, you know, in other religious sites also, because one of my you know, real interests in China is in its religious history and contemporary religious history. So um, I was always photographing stuff and, and holding on to it. So, I mean, yeah, you're right. In some degrees, it was, I guess, it, it was to be expected. But it, what also really I found shocking, not shocking, just interesting, was just the number of people involved in this exercise that they had about a dozen people or so in the office. And, you know, this is a small city. It's, it's not anything how big China is and how many, a city of 600,000 isn't really that significant in a country of 1.4 billion. Um, and they, they had all these people involved in writing the history. And when they really had to do other things, they could, they could dragoon in local historians, academics, and other people like that into their history writing enterprise. So the party puts a huge emphasis on this. It's so interesting, isn't it? What do you think the mechanism of removing that fact would have been? Who would have made that decision? I think these are guidelines that come down from the top. They're not, I don't think, a, not an explicit order from the standing committee of the Politburo to the Juro, make sure you erase that bit from the Cultural Revolution. But they do these impor incredibly important documents. And, and um, somebody I quote, a, a Vancouver-based academic, Wu Guogang, he talks about China as being a country of documentary politics and so that documents are passed around circulated and then they're they're sent down to the local levels to be guidelines for how to run the country so it's not really there are laws you know and China always talks about being a country rule rule of law or rule by law if you want to be more cynical and they do pass all these laws but really it's the documents that matter and so they pass history resolutions they pass these are the big big top down resolutions on party history. And there've been three of them. Xi Jinping did one in 2021. And they also have these work reports and work meetings, and they bring in all these uh, historians or local officials who are in charge of history to Beijing or to other places. I mean, first they probably have it at the county level and they have it in the provincial level. So in this case it would be Nanjing, and then they'll have it at the national level. And Xi Jinping presided over one of them, in fact, um, before taking power. And they had all these local history writing, thousands of them came to Beijing, you know, for these big plenary sessions at the Great Hall of the People, and they're given their marching orders on what to do. And so I think even before Xi Jinping took power in 2012 and, and in 2013 essentially said that criticism of the Cultural Revolution and the Mao era was off limits, that already the message was being sent down. So that when I went there, because these things in China, they're never really these turning points. We like to have turning points because it sort of makes it easier to remember 
things, but it always starts earlier, right? And, and it's always a, a process over several years. And, and just to push a little bit further on this, it's not at all the focus of your book, which is on unofficial historians, but I'm curious about the official historians because, um, you know, the county, uh, the Dangshu Zhongxin, the, the party history center in the county I worked in was full of people who took their job very seriously um, and were extremely knowledgeable and often very funny um, people. Like, I mean, how do they feel about having history that they have tracked down themselves erased like surely even at the official level there's got to be some sort of local pushback there are people of course who do push back and who feel badly about it i, I write there's one chapter in the book about a a journalist who was sent um along with the the government officials he was a state media and so he was sort of taken as one of the one of the gang and he went down to this county in southern hunan um, that was the site of a massacre, and they were trying to, uh, in, in the Cultural Revolution, they were, um, you know, supposed to come up with an accounting of what had happened and, and pay compensation to people and see that justice was done. This was in the early to mid 1980s under the former party secretary Hu Yaobang, who was quite a, a reformer. And um, and and then when he went back to uh, Changsha to to the, the capital of Hunan to write his article, uh, he was told he can't write it. And so he then decided he would take it upon himself to make it, it eventually became his life's work to document what happened in this county. So there are people inside the system who push back um, and and try or they try maybe maybe not. They're not all or most of them are not that courageous, but maybe in their own little way, they try to slip in. You can imagine the earlier gazetteers that mentioned the Cultural Revolution in Maoshan, that it was probably somebody then just slipped that in because they'd been a victim of the Cultural Revolution. And maybe the party secretary had also been a victim. It was like, yeah, we can you know, let that get in. We can allow that to be in. And uh, But as you move away from these events, it's literally the opposite that often happens in the West. When we move away from some horrible thing, such as how, um, say, Native American Indians were treated, we can have a better accounting of it in a way, right? We can look at it with clear eyed and see this was genocide and we can call it that. But in China, when you move away from something, the eyewitnesses who might call the government to account and say, you can't not mention the Cultural Revolution when talking about Mao Shan, that's absurd. They all are retired or out of power or dead. And the new people writing it look at it purely from an instrumental point of view of, does this help me or does this not help me stay in power? It doesn't help me to call into question the CCP's rule. So therefore, we're just going to get rid of it. And that's the process we've seen. That's fascinating. And, and as I said, you for 15, 20 years, you've been going around and talking to these counter historians or underground historians, many of whom have made incredible personal sacrifices to, to keep their histories alive. Um, I mean, whose story out of all these people you've talked to touched you the most, do you think? The book is mentioned several people. There's two main characters who sort of accompany this with idea, at least from beginning to end. That's the independent journalist Jiang Xue and the feminist scholar slash documentary filmmaker Ai Xiaoming. And Ai Xiaoming's a little bit older. She's about 70 something and uh, Jiang Xue is in her late 40s. So they're two kind of different generations. I think Jiang Xue's story to me, it touches me the most I guess in some ways I know her better. I've known her for many years. And she has this incredible story about her grandfather who kind of sacrificed himself so that his family could live in the during the Great Famine. And that story was uh, was uh, incredibly 
yeah, it's, I think it's really touching. And the way she tells it is, is so uh, moving that, um, that I really, uh, probably that one. And also the guy I mentioned who went into Dao County in Hunan to uncover um, the massacre, uh, Tan He Chang. He's such a funny, garrulous, absurd, contradictory character. He, you know, it's just, he used to laugh a minute while we're driving around these things. He says, that person got massacred, that person, and he's, and what a, this are like asshole intellectuals. They are also, you know, they're all like kissing the ass of the government, and they all got killed there, you know, it's like, it's it was terrible. You thought you were dealing with a schizo, and probably to some degree he is schizophrenic from having to deal with all this. But he was really a funny, funny person to, to talk to, as as terrible as it sounds. You know? And I'm thinking of like in terms of the erasure of memories or the difficulty of keeping these these stories alive. Uh, I mean, one of the most striking examples from your book is this guy called um, Goar Tai, who who survived this notorious labor camp in in northwest China, um, literally called the the ditch. Um, and at the onset of the Cultural Revolution, he was working at the Morgarkay's research site. And he has this wonderful quote where he says, Overnight, those gentle reserve people turned into fierce beasts, this awful transformation that just occurs. I mean, is it the case, do you think, with some incidents, that things were simply so horrific that neither the victims nor the perpetrators want to remember much as war veterans don't want to talk about a war when they come back like do you think that's part of the difficulty of recovering these histories it is and i think it's um it's also instructive to think of recent western history um i've lived for a long time in germany and germany is often held up as a model country for dealing with the past of course there's even a special german word for it you know for gangenheitsbewältigung dealing with the past and uh, germany paid compensation to all these people but it wasn't like that right after the war. Um, there were the Nuremberg trials. A bunch of Nazis were put on trial. They were executed. And then the Cold War started. And the West basically said, oh, we need all the factories um, you know, in Germany for the Korean War. And uh, Krupp and all these people who were the big industrialists who packed the Nazis were all you know, back in the saddle again. And it was only really in, with maybe the Eichmann trial in Jerusalem and then the 68 generation, that, so 20 years after, later, the next generation that really began in Germany to uncover the past and to hold people account and to point out all the ex-Nazis who served in the Adenauer government, etc., etc. So I think at some level, right after a, a, a trauma, um, and even though Germany was a perpetrator, it also was traumatized by millions and millions of its own people dead and the cities bombed to rubble, that people just want to get on with things. And this is sort of drives, drove this manic... Um, energy in Germany after the war. I remember reading a, a New York Times, I wrote a book on, on, on Germany uh, a while ago, sort of an outlier book, but I read a New York Times correspondent in the 1950s um, who wrote about these uh, people in on German trains, these you know captains of industry, just minor captains of industry on the trains with their secretary then, then they were dictating things. The moment they got into the next station, secretary would run out and send the telex and, and then they'd be on the train to another place and they'd be like running around rebuilding the country with this manic energy. And you think of China after the Cultural Revolution in the 80s and 90s and 2000s, it was similar, right? It was like this terrible stuff. And then, then you have Tiananmen, which causes sort of, an, it's another national trauma. And people just are like, you know, 
let's just focus on what we can do, which is improving our life through hard work. Because we, and especially in China, where you don't even then have the mechanisms of civil society and a free press and et cetera, et cetera, to deal with the past, it's so much easier to just say, let's just think about our life, our family, and try to work as hard as we can and just forget about all that stuff. So, I mean, given that, how much impact do you think the counter historians can reasonably have? I mean, you know, I was thinking in particular about the case of the Remembrance Journal, which is, you know, a PDF that goes out every week to just 200 people. How much do you think they can really shift the dial on on sort of memory and remembering and recovering that history? The journal Remembrance, GE, they're a very interesting story because they started um, 15 years ago and they sponsored a big discussion about the uh, cultural revolution and the, the, the editor of it, Woody, he tried to, he had this idea, uh, he told me he wanted to have a Willy Brandt moment where, you know, Willy Brandt fell down on his knees spontaneously before the Warsaw, uh, the victims of the Warsaw ghetto uprising and, that, and, and lay a wreath and that this sort of was a genuine moment of a reconciliation and helped pave Germany's re- West West Germany at least re- rehabilitation in the world. And he'd hope for something like that, and in, in encouraging this discussion with uh, Song Bin Bin, who was a Red Guard and and was allegedly involved in the, the killing of a of, of her teacher in school, a very notorious case. And also the descendant of one of the great immortals, right? Yeah, the descendant of a famous general. And, and then after, a couple of days after the beating to death of the, of the teacher, she was up on the rostrum with Mao, who changed her name from Bin Bin, which means so like refined, to Yao Wu, like strong martial power or something like that. And you know, there was a very military, militaristic sort of name. And she went on to become associated with the worst excesses of the Cultural Revolution. Anyway, he thought if she could apologize, um, then that would be a a turning point. And she did try to apologize, and he organized this conference and so on and so forth. But um, in the end, this discussion was, was closed down. But still, Remembrance continues to publish, and it does go out from Udi to 200 people. But there's this informal rule which is probably no longer valid or if it was ever valid, but people sort of have this in their mind. If they send it out to more than 200 people, you're publishing something. If you're sending it to under 200 people, you're sort of just sending out a newsletter to friends. Now, if the government wants to get you, they're not going to say, oh, we're not going to get you because you only send it out to 199 people instead of 201 people, right? They're just going to nail you. But there was this feeling, I think it's probably accurate, that if you don't make a big deal about it um, and you don't send it out to too many people, then it won't be seen as an effort to publish. But of course, those people also send it up to more people and more people and more people. And now they've subsequently networked to grad students in the United States. It's published as a print publication in the West with an ISBN number. And also, so they have a Guone, sort of a domestic edition, and they have a Guawai edition, which is slightly different in terms of its editing and, and, and certain things like that. But they are able to now use international contacts to keep going. And I think their influence extends, in other words, well beyond 200 people. I mean, I think it's not, it's fair to say thousands of people read every issue. It's highly influential. Um, In the current environment with Xi Jinping in such firm control and having made control of history, one of his signature policies, it's hard to see that this will go anywhere. But 
it's important though for other for for two other reasons. I mean, one is so you know now I'm working at a think tank, CFR, and they always want to know what are the policy implications of this. And this is what people when I we have these brown bag lunches and people are like, so what does this actually mean for Xi Jinping's rule? Is he going to be toppled because of this or not? And I'm like, okay, not okay. Well, then we don't care. So you know, this is sort of like it's kind of it's sort of like an inst- it's an instrumentalistic way also of looking at China, right? Like the only reason you care about things is because is it going to impact you know the election cycle or something like that or what policy should be adopted in Congress or, or elsewhere. But I think they matter in the, you know, in memory studies, there are these ideas of carrier groups of people who carry memory forward. And I would argue that these people are even more than that. They have formed a kind of collective memory, uh, you know, collective memory. I think we often think of that as being sort of like, you know, 60, 70% of the population believes in something or, or understands something, but it doesn't have to be that high. It can be small groups of people in the original way it was um, the original concept. So you, you have a collective memory among, I'd say, intellectuals in China and a knowledge of the past that didn't exist before because of these simple digital technologies like PDFs and the ability to make documentary films in a way that wasn't possible 25 years ago. Now you can just record it on your device and cut it on your laptop. And even though we take all this completely for granted nowadays, that means that anybody can make a film. Doesn't mean it'll be a good film, but they can, you know, anybody can kind of make a film and people do. Um, and that's liberates that kind of storytelling. The same with PDFs, you don't have to have a printing press and you can send it around easily. Um, that has an impact on the deep structural level, I think. So now it's no longer just, you know, in the 80s, it was probably just a few hundred people knew of many of these things in China. Well-connected intellectuals in Beijing and a few other key cities would know. And now I think you go to any small town and people know a lot of things and they can find this stuff out so much more easily than in the past. In the, in the Cold War, Educated people in the West were much more aware of people like the filmmaker Milos Forman or Kundera or Solzhenitsyn. These are sort of household names if you were a reader, if you were a reader of serious newspapers and stuff like that. And now you'd be hard pressed. I mean, partly it's because Chinese names are hard to know or to understand or whatever. But for for Westerners, it's also a lack of intellectual curiosity. It's almost like writing off China and saying we don't care about it anymore, and and it's uh, we're just going to view it as the ultimate sort of other, right? With no actors, with no people, with any agency at all. They've all been erased. And so I think it's important just to know these people exist and what they're doing because um, we care about China. I mean, this is one thing I'm curious to get at is that in some ways, when we talk, when we think of historians, like the people I share a corridor with, you know, they spend their day analyzing documents and debating over documents. But so much of what these underground historians are doing is almost collation. So say someone like Yang Zhisheng, his book Tombstone, it's more about, you know, aggregating the facts, almost historical aggregation to prove that this thing did actually happen rather than analyzing the event itself. I mean, do you, do you think in some ways this differs from history in the way we normally understand it? There is a lot of that uh, in China because the material is so hard to get and there's still such a value in collecting the material in, in a way that we maybe, I don't say denigrate, but look down on a little bit, right? Now in, in Western academics, so much is all about the theory and whether you can apply Foucault to something or 
or Bourdieu or something like that. <laughs> if you can't use... Control yourself, Louisa, control yourself. <laughs> I was going to say Bourdieu. He's a favorite. That's the one everyone goes to when they can't think of anyone else. They're just like, Bourdieuian. No, it always reminded me of um, in East Germany, um, when you started out writing your PhD thesis, you had to have a, a quote by Lenin at the, at the start of your thesis. And now it's like, you have to have a quote by Foucault or something like that. And this, well, the funny thing is, these are not really cutting edge intellectuals, right? They're, they're all, you know, dead or, or, or nanogenarians or something like that. So, I mean, they've been around for 50 years, right? So anyways, but anyways, this is another topic. Um, so, um, no, I think there's a value. Just And they see a value in collecting this and kind of proving that it happened and to collect as many eyewitness accounts as possible before the eyewitnesses die. And um, that's an important thing. And they see this... Some of them see this as um, almost like a message in a bottle to future generations or uh, you're, you're on planet Krypton and your, your planet's about to destroy, destroy it. And so you put your precious cargo on your rocket ship and shoot it off into the future um, in the form of YouTube videos or something like that and try to, um, and try to protect, preserve it. And this is, this is a bit tangential, but it's, it's something that occurred to me just thinking about the county that I spent so long in, in that their history was sort of the history of the 1930s purges where their faction of the Communist Party was basically wiped out in the county and, and has led to their county being marginal to this day um, because they lost out in Mao's purges. For them, remembering the purges doesn't help them if you know what I mean so it's it's in the unofficial and the official interest into just let's just forget how black our county was and and how you know hated it is in party history and and move on but um I mean if you come across anything like that where it's literally no one wants to remember because it doesn't help anyone it's a bit like that in Dao County in southern Hunan province when when I was at Tan Ho Chung he met this um he met this young fellow who runs sort of a copy shop slash internet cafe slash whatever. And he was a direct descendant of a Neo-Confucian philosopher, uh, Zhou Duni. And it was going to be his, you know, the 1100th birthday of Zhou and the county was going to celebrate it and stuff like that. And he wanted to be part of the celebration, right? And he wanted to be, he was the oldest, but, you know, very, after 1100 years, who knows if he's really related or not, but he was going to be one of the main people up on the podium of the celebration. And so while his grandparents were executed in this wave of extrajudicial killings, um, and he wants that accounted for, and he really appreciates what Tan Ho Chung does uh, to document all this, and he's somewhat in awe of him. On the other hand, he's kind of like, maybe we should just tone this down a little bit, because I need to kind of get on with my life, and I want to participate in this society and there's no realistic chance of having a true accounting so i'm going to take this put it on my bookshelf it's there for future generations thanks very much but now i've got to kind of move on it is always one of the problems of writing about history and historians in china just what a moving target that it is you know and probably since you started working on this book, history has become way more sensitive with sort of more and more eras kind of falling into the category of possibly verging on historical nihilism or questioning the party. Uh, How did you go about dealing with those ethical problems and uh, especially because, you know, what we're seeing now is also a lot of kind of retrospective action where people are being pulled up for things that they might have said years ago. Yeah, how did you deal with that? Because it's always such a problem. Yeah, 
course, the first uh, rule, I guess, doing journalism in China is do no harm or because you never want to get people in trouble. And I, I can remember talking to farmers in the 1990s and you'd ask them about land expropriation and you'd say, can I use your name? And the guy's like, oh, don't just use my name. Take a picture of my ID card, my Shen Fen Zhang. You know, they'd hold it up to your camera, take a picture of this, print it in the newspaper and you tell Jiang Zemin what I think. And you're like, okay, okay, wait a minute. Not gonna be, maybe we're not going to do that. We're going to call you Old Wang from a or something like that. Um, so you, sometimes you have to be careful and anonymize people or, or talk it over with them very carefully. I don't want to even mention person's name, but there was somebody like that in this foreign affairs piece that I wrote, especially after 2021 when Xi Jinping issued his new resolution on party history, the third one in the party's 100-year history, that things, as you said, got even more sensitive. Yeah, when I mean, you mentioned your foreign affairs piece, I can't, I can't resist uh, bringing it up, which you called the, uh, the great walling off of China. And I was really stuck by some of the difficulties you were describing there, which were uh, quite surreal. Your, your professor friend didn't want to meet you on campus. Um, he needs approval to attend conferences, can't publish in China, and only one out of the 12 issues of his anthropology journal has made it past the censors. Um, and another friend of yours reverts to basically metaphor to talking about 13th century Mongol history to obliquely make any reference to the present day. I mean, is, is this as bad as it's got? I mean, this, this is sounding as bad as it's been. Oh, I think it's as bad as it's been since the end of the Cultural Revolution. I th there was a period probably right after Tiananmen when things were pretty bad, um, but that only lasted, in, in hindsight, right, that only lasted a year and or so, a little bit over a year till Deng did his Nanshun, his southern tour, and then things kind of opened up again. And um, So I think this is the most sustained period of control, and it doesn't seem to be getting better. Um, it doesn't seem that there's any rethink that this might be behind China's slowdown or that its foreign policy is extremely counterproductive on a whole range of levels. You don't see any signs of a rethink. And so the future of history in China is going to be difficult. I think for these people and other people who follow, it's going to be hard and a lonely uh, calling. I think the best case scenario for China probably is that it continues down this path of counterproductive economic policies for another five or 10 years. And then when Xi Jinping dies in the saddle, which is probably what's going to happen, that the party sees that China has not achieved its goals. It hasn't become a top level country like it wants to be economically and that it replaces him with somebody who's more reform oriented um, and that this allows a more open period like in the 1980s. But of course, even then, it wouldn't be a, a truly open society or anything like that. But it would it would give more space for people to um, to write history and do other things as well. But that's not a very positive scenario, and is by no means assured. You can also have other scenarios, right, where she is uh, may look like the moderate guy, and he could be replaced by some sort of warmongering type person uh, like Putin, um, and engage in a series of adventures, etc. Yeah, for sure. I never thought I'd look back on the good old days of Jiang Zemin, but here we are. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm interested, though, in that kind of intellectual walling off and the impact that it's had on young Chinese people. I mean, we have a lot of students from China here in Australia, and I've even in the sort of six, seven years that I've been here, I've noticed they've become a lot less open, a lot less 
able to sort of have any form of critical thinking about their own country's history. And yet these are some of the most educated people. You know, what would have to happen for young people to sort of begin to look more critically at China's history? Because it appears to me that in the past, people often went overseas and began that period of questioning and re-examining their own history. But now when they go overseas, in fact, it's almost like an echo bubble, where in many cases, they actually become more nationalistic. Yeah, no, there's, I guess there's a variety of reasons for that. Uh, one is social media, and people just seem to be still living in their WeChat world, even when they go abroad. And also, they're probably more aware of class monitors or people in their circle of friends who are inevitably reporting on them. And they know that their phones can be searched quickly and easily by public security when they return back to China to visit family. Then also, China's actions abroad has made it the sort of public enemy number one of many foreign governments. And Inevitably, when you go overseas, you tend to always, I think, be a little more defensive of your country. Or you may say things that when you're at home, but when you go abroad and people start attacking your country, even if you're very critical of your country, you tend to say, well, wait a minute, it's not that bad. And we also have da 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 da. There's probably that at play also, because now uh, almost no politician in the West will say anything positive about China, or else you're accused almost of treason if you say something, you know, being a panda hugger. You can't even push sort of academic exchanges, even things like that are, are viewed often very suspiciously, at least in some, at least in this country, in the United States. But I think there's also people get interested in history or in alternative versions of reality um, when something affects them directly. So when you look at the people who write about the Cultural Revolution, most of them were involved in the Cultural Revolution in some ways. And I think now you're ha you had this COVID lockdown, which affected a new generation of people and caused a kind of a bit of a collective tra trauma. And the way it was also released and the people who died at the end of last year, that's caused more people to, to, to rethink. You could see the number of the surge of people using VPNs and the white paper protests, which weren't mass protests, perhaps, but they were still significant, the biggest protests in in years, certainly in the Xi Jinping era. So if you think of China going forward in this period of the most likely scenario is economic stagnation, demographic challenges, et cetera, et cetera, you're not going to have the happy days of double digit economic growth anymore. And, and I think you'll have more people who are wondering, well, what's gone wrong? And I don't think it's a coincidence that some of the people like Jiang Xue, the journalist I mentioned, that their work has become very popular, was very popular in the COVID lockdowns. And um, I think the final thing I would just say in that is that, is that she, she write, wrote this piece on January 1st of this year of 2023, and she quoted Vaclav Havel, who made a famous speech in 1990. He said, who are these young people? And he was talking about Czechoslovak young people who uh, stood up and protested. And he said they, they were raised in the communist period in era. They only knew the communist education system, but somehow they were the ones at the forefront of, of the vanguard. And she said, by the same token, who are the who are these young people in China today who naively went and got involved in the white paper protest? That there's something innate in humans that demands justice and the search for truth, and that probably can't be killed so easily. 
talking about these continuities in history, um, one of your most fascinating characters in the book, Huang Zerong, I think is his name, uh, a former Sichuan Daily reporter who is now under 24-7 surveillance. And he has this wonderful moment where he's talking about the persistence of ideas and he says that Mao's body has died but his ideas haven't. The Communist Party upholds these ideas but all of the crimes committed by the Communist Party come from Mao Zedong. And, and his words really reminded me of Jeremy Barme on, on our program um, basically saying that no matter how much time passes, the evil genius of Mao, the People's Republic of China will never be free of Mao. I mean, do you think China is ever likely to be de as seemed likely, I guess, some, you know, not that long ago? Yeah, there was that. The second party resolution on history in the, in the early 80s that Deng presided over, there were many, they had thousands of people involved in drafting this resolution who read it, and many of them were were wanting a, st- a stronger accounting of Mao. And many of them had experienced the Great Famine. It was just 20 years earlier. They came from these areas that had been badly hit. The Great Famine was almost completely ignored in the in the party resolution. And it's one of these sort of great ignored moments in Chinese history. Um, the Cultural Revolution you could talk about, sort of, because intellectuals were involved, Deng's family suffered, etc. But the anti-rightist campaign, which eradicated um, China's intellectuals, Deng, Deng recognized, and it's a truism, but I think it's still worth repeating, that Mao is the sort of Lenin and Stalin of, of the People's Republic. The Soviet Union could de-Stalinize because they had Lenin as the founding father. They could say, oh, yeah, Lenin was okay, even though you know, he wasn't. But because I say he was all right, all the excesses were because of Stalin. Um, you can't do that with Mao. If you get rid of Mao, you get rid of basically the CCP because he so completely dominated it from pretty early days, not from the very beginning, but pretty early on. And it's all his vision and his corpse lies in the middle of Beijing and his picture hangs over Tiananmen Square. And I think uh, Hong Zerong said that as long as Mao's body is in the center of Beijing, we're not going to be able to move forward as a, as a normal country. Now I'm going to ask a slightly cheeky question. When I was uh, doing my research, I looked at the teaching notes section of your website where there were some essay questions. And I noted that in your essay questions for undergraduate and graduate courses in memory studies, you had one which I'm going to read out loud, which said, how does Ian Johnson's Sparks contrast with Louisa Lim's The People's Republic of Amnesia? What are the key reasons they come to such different conclusions? Yeah, you know, I, I don't know if we come to such different conclusions, actually. I think we're looking at two sides of the same coin. And I think that would be my answer to this would be the correct answer that I would imagine students would come up with. Um, it's okay, there are no correct answers. <laughs> no, there's only one yeah. correct answer. And um, I mean, to me, that would be that's why I thought it was really interesting to talk with you about it, because we both wrote books on this on, on this topic. And I don't think that they're really that different because, I mean, you talk about people who remember as well. And I think you're making the important point that for the vast majority of people, the history has been erased. And I'm not saying in my book, people, you know, it's not not like I'm saying the glass is half full and maybe saying the glass is 5% full. (laughs) That's sort of 10% full. And so I'm just putting the, the focus a little bit more on the people who are keeping the memory alive. So I think that they would be read to get well together as books, complementary books. I mean, I just wanted to follow up on that because I think one of the issues is really that there are these Chinese historians that are doing amazing work, but a lot of it 
it seems hard for it to get out beyond China. And, you know, there's almost this divide between Western academia and work written in Chinese. And now when you see a lot of this work actually leaving Hong Kong and leaving China, and you had that sort of amazing example about Baopu calling you up and asking you to take all those books, the sort of history is even further removed from the people who are closest to it. How do you think that is going to have an impact on the way that, on the ability of this work to reach wider audiences? I think the interesting thing I've noticed in terms of, say, Hong Kong and uh, that development was that how many of these people or how much of this work is now done in foreign countries? How many people, for example, are in New York? It's just absolutely amazing how many Chinese artists and, and journalists and so on come here and but still interact with China in a way that I don't think was true of um, exile groups in the past. It used to be there was nothing sort of sadder than the way many dissidents would go overseas, famous heroic figures, and they'd become completely marginalized and ignored after maybe one or two fellowships. And then they'd sort of devolve into completely sort of irrelevant people. Um, and and I think that, that that's um, still a risk for any exile. but. In in China, I, I do think there there seems to be more, maybe because of the digital technologies and because of the fact there still are people coming and going between the countries, there is more interaction. And so some of the work that was done in Hong Kong that was absolutely crucial in Hong Kong can now be done in New York. You can publish books. And because so much of this is digital anyway, you don't really... It's nice to have the printed books, but you can't really bring them into China anyway. You haven't been able to do that for almost a decade because they started, I can't remember when it was, 2014, 2015. They had that, what they called the South Hill, Southern Hill campaign where they, they were checking people's suitcases when they came in from Hong Kong. They were x-raying them for books, not for liquor or cigarettes and stuff like that. So I, I think that the, the digital thing makes a difference. And so I do see also a lot more interaction, like Zheng Shui, the, the Chinese journalist who I write, she was here for a while visiting and she can, um, you know, some, some of the people can come and go. The very prominent people are under house arrest. Ai Xiaoming cannot leave the country. Um, and she was told recently she won't be able to leave the country until 2032. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly why 2032 and not 20 wow so it'd be close to 80 years old then um, and there was no reason given no no i don't think so but i think it's just her her documentary films her outspoken comments etc but i saw one of uh, another chinese feminist journalist lisa pan she's in san francisco and through stanford university she's organizing a conference about the films of i show me and so Ai Xiaoming is calling in on a video link. But this is great. I mean, this is the sort of thing that more, and also in terms of the impact in the West, this is something in the end, in the, la, in the conclusion, in the last chapter, I sort of criticize Western uh, think tanks and bookstores and, and, and um, publishers, film festivals for not doing more with these people. Like it's sort of, it surprises me to no end that there's been no retrospective of Hu Jie's films. Those films are fantastic. Those are really, really good films. But you don't see a retrospective of his work at major film festivals. I kind of wonder why. Or Ai Xiaoming's made 20 odd, Chinese, uh, odd documentaries. These are ambitious works of huge scope. They are 
ambitious, serious works, and yet they don't seem to get the kind of showing that, and, and there are a variety of reasons for them. One, I think a key thing is language. In the Cold War, I think there was more intellectual curiosity about Eastern and Central Europe because they were also from the sort of white European tradition that made it easier for people to kind of understand it. And also, I think back then, publishers in the West had a lot more money and they could basically commission translations of people. And in a way now, publishers are so bottom line fixated and so cautious about that, that these books don't get translated unless the foundation's behind it. So Tombstone and uh, The World Turned Upside Down by Yang Jisheng were only translated because of um, foundation money. And I think in the past, in the 70s and 80s, you know, you had series of books about Eastern and Central European intellectuals and blah, blah, blah. And they were had introductions written by Philip Roth and so on and so forth. You just don't see that. I have one final question I'd love to ask you before we go. Um, and, and that is this, um, you have this really interesting quote where you say that this near lack of historical memory means that what we think of today is more like a post memory where traditional forms of first generation witnesses, books, testimonies, documents are lacking. Um, so I wonder if you could say a bit more about what you mean by post-memory and, and can history that's based on this um, ever hope to survive? Uh, so the idea of post-memory is that the a lot of the historical record has been completely eradicated. And I think I was using it mainly in respect to the minority regions of China um, and Tibet. This is where you don't necessarily have the eyewitnesses who've been recorded or videoed and you don't have the documents. One, one reason I think, for example, the Great Famine doesn't get a lot of ink isn't just because it was only farmers who died as opposed to intellectuals who write books about their travails, um, which is the case of the Cultural Revolution, but also because there's no photographic evidence of it. There's almost no pictures. Without that kind of photographic record, especially in this day and age when we're so, we need images, we need to see things, some parts of the Chinese past just get forgotten. Without those kind of records, you have to do other things. One way is to write novels about it. So Fang Fang, who did the Wuhan Diary, has written a great novel, I think, very interesting novel called Soft Burial, which is all about the campaign against the landholders in the early 1950s. And this hasn't been translated. I know it sounds really a stupid question, but it seems like one of the problems with Chinese history is there's just so much of it. You know, it's just a massive country and the history is so complicated and it's so different in different places. So, you know, one example I'm thinking of is the kind of wars that happen in Chongqing and the Cultural Revolution, which are almost nobody can even explain or understand anymore. Do we just kind of have to accept that a lot of Chinese history is going to be lost? Well, I think it's being, a lot of it's been documented. Um, it's been lost to the mainstream of Chinese society. That's for sure. But I think that a lot of it has been kept alive by the efforts of people inside China and outside China, but I think the unheralded efforts of, of people inside China and I don't think it will be lost. I think the people I profile have the absolute conviction that in the end, justice prevails. Because this is actually one of the leitmotifs of Chinese history, is that in the end, the people re remember Sima Qian, right? As you said at the beginning of the podcast, they don't remember the emperor 
who castrated him. Well, maybe, maybe they do, but I don't know who he is. I know, but Sima Qian is the, is the hero of the story. By the same token, they think of themselves in a way as heroes in, of the future, the people who will be seen as the right, being on the right side of history. And this is also probably a, a very human idea that right triumphs might. We can only hope they're right, but at least they're giving it a good shot for now. There's a nice circular circularity to start with Sebastian and finish with him too. Good, good. Ian, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. It was a real pleasure. You've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Many thanks to our guest, as well as my co-host, Louisa Lim. Our editing is by Andy Hazel, background research by Wing Kwong, our music is by Susie Wilkins, and our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danto. Bye for now.